0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation, Michael Pollan explores the previously uncharted territory of his own kitchen. Here he discovers the power of the four classical elements, fire, water, air, and earth, to transform the stuff of nature into delicious things we eat and drink. Cooked becomes an investigation of how cooking involves us in a web of social and ecological relationships with plants and animals, the soil, farmers, our history and culture, and of course, The people our cooking nourishes. Cooking above all connects us. Michael Pollan says that the effects of not cooking are similarly far-reaching. Relying on corporations to process our food means we consume large quantities of fat, sugar, and salt. Michael Pollan, author of several previous best-selling books, such as The Omnivore's Dilemma, joins me for the hour on today's Access Utah, following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, coming up, my conversation with Michael Pollan, author most recently of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. First, a couple of minutes of Unfinished Business from Thursday's program. Uh, You'll recall that on uh, Thursday's program, we talked about vegetarian and vegan culture. We asked such questions as, should we eat meat? And why are you a vegetarian or vegan? Or why do you eat meat? Do you think about where your food comes from? And how does this affect your eating decisions? Those last couple of questions... Uh, We'll uh, cover in more detail with Michael Pollan in this hour. hope you stay tuned for that. So uh, it it, uh, got a big response, as you'll recall, and uh, to, to the point where we weren't able to fit these three email comments in. I promised to fit those in the beginning of the program today, so here they are. First is from Catherine. She says, My husband and I became closer to becoming vegan after he had a stroke at age 40. We went looking for ways to become healthier and were introduced to the movie Forks Over Knives. It shows the benefits of a plant-based diet with the elimination of processed foods. Over a year, we each lost about 40 pounds and have been sick substantially less. Our grocery bill also has gone down and our food is delicious. I have no problem with the people eating animals. My husband has been an enthusiastic bow hunter. We would donate the meat tea if you got anything. I think the benefits of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains is highly overlooked. I feel our society is sometimes manipulated into believing what is good for us. Cheese, for example. Please don't think the only reason to become vegan or vegetarian is to save animals. Some of us want to be healthier. It's a comment from Catherine. Thank you for that. Uh, here is a comment from Marnie. I became a vegetarian 22 years ago and have raised my seven children on a mostly vegetarian diet. I feel better about my diet, and my kids are unusually strong and healthy. Also, we spend much less money on food than other families. That's from Marnie. Thank you for that. And uh, this uh, comes in um, from April. She says, why don't vegans eat honey? It doesn't kill bees. Uh, So... uh, those are uh, three more comments. Of course, you can catch that program from Thursday on our website, upr.org. We'd love to have your response to these emails. Continue this discussion on veganism and vegetarianism at upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. We'll get those uh, comments on the air. Welcome to Axis U Time, Tom Williams. We're very pleased to welcome in for the hour today Michael Pollan, author of several best selling books, the latest of which just out called Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. Cooked follows the twists and turns of Michael Pollan's education in the kitchen. And he organizes uh, his journey around four classic elements, fire, water, air, and earth, apprenticing himself to a series of culinary experts. Michael Pollan, of course, author of The Botany of Desire, and food rules in defense of food, the omnivore's dilemma—all New York Times bestsellers. He's a Knight Professor of Journalism at uh, Cal Berkeley, and in 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. We're uh, happy to welcome you and Michael Pollum. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, so this uh, must have been quite the journey. I wonder what the what was your goal, sending out to to do this?
1: Well, you know, I got interested in cooking because I'd been working on the rest of the food chain, You know, I'd written Omnivore's Dilemma, which is about the earth end of the food chain, where the plants and animals are how we bring them out of the earth and on farms. And then I leapt ahead and looked at the, the, the far other extreme of the food chain, the body, what happens to us when we eat this stuff. But I hadn't really paid much attention to the middle link in the food chain,
2: which is where
1: the stuff coming out of nature gets transformed into the things we actually eat. And the longer I spent looking at the whole food chain, and I did spend about a dozen years on it, I guess, all told, um, the more I realized that that middle link was really influential, that, uh, as you suggested in your intro, it's going to be very hard to have uh, continue this renaissance of small, sustainable farming, uh, diversified farming, if people aren't cooking, because... It's the industrialization of eating that really drove the industrialization of our agriculture. It's the fast food companies and their needs and the processed food companies that drives us in the direction of all this, um, you know, these giant monocultures and these, um, you know, uh, brutal animal factories that we that where we produce our meat. Um, and it's the reason that, you know, 90 cents of your food dollar now goes to someone other than a farmer. It goes to someone who's doing the processing. So if we really want to get more money in the hands of farmers and, and revitalize American agriculture, I realized we had to be buying ingredients, not processed foods. So that was one insight that launched me on this. And the other was my discovery that it whether you cook or not, or whether your diet is cooked by a human being or a corporation – is probably the single most important determinant uh, of whether it's healthy or not. And if we, outsource, if we continue to outsource our cooking to corporations, we're going to continue to struggle with obesity and chronic disease. So I, I came to think cooking was really important, and I set out to figure out what's, what is it all about, what makes it tick, what are the fundamentals, uh, what is this crucial human activity, you know, where did it come from, what does it do for us, and how do you do it? Um, so that's, that's really was the inspiration.
0: And you write that uh, you're, you're trying to recover the reality of food. In fact, you talk about abstraction as, as a problem. Um, and the best way to recover that uh, reality is to master the process of transformation, yeah, well, which is you cooking. Know, we're
1: eating images in a way. I mean, McDonald's sells us an image of a hamburger in a way. Um, it's a pretty mediocre hamburger if you really break it down. But, it, you know, great sauce, great bun, looks good. Um, and um, we, we've we lost track of where food comes from. We've had this great collective forgetting of where food comes from, what it really means, what it does for us as, uh, as a species, as uh, individuals, as families, as communities. It's all been reduced to this um, very disconnected, you know, the shrink wrap package of meat that doesn't really tell you that it's part of an animal. Um, and in some ways, it's a very kind of momentous even sacred thing that we're eating so um cooking is a way to get back in touch with everything that is at stake everything that is beautiful about it and um because when you handle a piece of meat and you learn how to butcher it you realize wow this is the muscle of an animal i wonder what kind of life it led and suddenly you're you know you're you're you've you've reconnected the dots between what you're doing because food is not a product you know it's not just a thing It, it really is a set of relationships that ties us to the natural world, other species, and other people. And um, so I find cooking was a really good way. I mean, for those, those of us who can't go to, down to the farms and do the kind of investigative journalism I've done, cooking is the next best thing for figuring out where your food came from and, and what's really going on with it.
0: Cooking connects us not only with other people but, uh, but with nature, you're saying?
1: It's one of our most significant engagements with nature. You know, we think that we engage with nature when we're out, you know, camping or uh, hunting or, you know, uh, outdoors dealing with wilderness and the woods. But in fact, our most important engagement with the natural world really comes uh, in the kitchen and on our plates. It's through our eating that we affect nature more than anything else we do, more than the kind of car you drive or how you heat your house. agriculture really has changed the natural world more than just about anything.
0: You also uh, talk about how in today's world, we're all specialists. We all do something that we sell uh, to to the world, and we consume everything else. And the cooking is is very special, connects you. You actually make something when you cook.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very easy way that all of us can become producers and not merely passive consumers. You know, the book is in a way, I mean, you're getting at, you know, my kind of larger agenda in this book, which is, um, it's about a lot more than food. It's about how we live. And one of the notable things about modern life is that we live in this era of over-specialization. In in, uh, the kind of economy we have, we're encouraged to do one thing that we're good at, make as much money at it as we can, and then everything else we need in life, we outsource. We pay someone else to do for us. So we have, you know, we, we have um, entertainers to entertain us. We have uh, doctors to take care of our health. We have shrinks to take care of our mental health. We have, um, uh, you know, people who who make our clothing. Um, and we're kind of, as a result, I mean, there are wonderful things about specialization, but as a result, we're kind of helpless. And um, and we're turned into consumers for you know most of our time on this planet, and every our whole lives are organized as occasions for consumption, and consumption is great up to a point, but it's also not our most noble uh, identity. You know we have many identities and. I think, you know, when you can join the producers of the world, you feel a lot better about yourself. You feel like you're making a contribution. You're doing something in support of your own body and in support of your family. And cooking is kind of the easiest way to, to kind of recalibrate the balance between production and consumption in your life because it's something we can all do. And, it's, it, it, you know, we already have a room designed for production of food. It's called the kitchen. We don't have to go build a wood shop or anything. Um, so it's, it's kind of a wonderful opportunity that, that uh, a lot of us are not taking advantage of.
0: Yeah, I was just going to talk about that. We all have a kitchen, but, uh, you know, more and more over time, I guess a lot of us have drifted away from the kitchen and I I don't know what it's going to take to get a lot of us back in the kitchen.
1: I think it's a real it's a real issue, and, and it's a concern of mine. I mean, one of the things that inspired this book was discovering that um, only about 57% of meals are cooked now in America. Uh, half of our food dollars goes to food that's cooked outside the home, and we only spend about 27 minutes a day cooking and four minutes cleaning up. Um, these rates have fallen by half since the mid-60s, um, and... That decline in cooking very closely tracks the rise in obesity, and that's no accident um, because when corporations cook, yeah, they tend to make fatty, they tend to use a lot of salt, fat, and sugar, and they tend to cook those kind of labor-intensive foods really cheaply, make them very cheap, like french fries and, you know, desserts and cakes and things like that, that are so much trouble that home cooks don't make them that often. They're, they're, They're special occasion foods that when industry gets a hold of them, become everyday foods. And and that's one of the reasons that um, we're so struggling with our weight. So, you know, actually, I got this bit of wisdom from someone who works in the food industry, um, a character in the book named Harry Balzer, who's a uh, Chicago-based food marketing consultant. And we were talking about the decline in cooking, which he, he thinks will not be reversed. And, uh, and I was saying, well, what are we, what are we going to do about obesity? And, um, you know, he acknowledged that obesity is the result of eating all this processed food. And he said, you want to know the diet, the one diet that'll work. And I, and I was all ears and I picked up my pen and started, you know, get, get was poised to write it in my, my reporter's notebook. And he says, eat anything you want as long as you cook it yourself. So he had a really, there's an understanding, there's an insight from deep in the belly of the beast of of, uh, the food industry um, that the problem is when you outsource your cooking, you're eating a very fattening diet. And if you insource your cooking, you will automatically, no matter what you make, you will automatically improve your health and reduce your your weight. And it is a really good diet, actually, um, to cook yourself. We know that people who cook have healthier diets, even... Poor women who cook have much healthier diets than rich women who don't.
0: Interesting. I was just going to bring up the economic disparity. Um, I've read somewhere, I don't know if this is accurate, that uh, poor people uh, often migrate toward processed foods because it's cheaper than, than cooking.
1: I don't think that that's true. I think that um in general there've been some really interesting experiments that have been done. And when you when you buy processed food, you have to pay for the processing. You have to pay for the packaging. Um you pay for all that food science. Um if you're strategic about it and you don't waste the food you're buying, um you can make better food more cheaply doing it yourself. The difference is it takes a little more time. And that's a cost too. Um But, you know, there have been some interesting studies of could you make a McDonald's meal um, for what a McDonald's meal costs. And the answer is Mark Bittman did this uh, last year or two years ago. He did a really nice little experiment, and he found that he could. And, by the way, you know, the hamburgers you make yourself um, are far, far better than the ones that McDonald's uh, sells. So I think actually cooking is economical. If you just do it once a week, it might not be because you'll probably waste a lot of food. Uh, but if you begin to do it routinely, you find these amazing economies having to do with leftovers, especially. Um, I often make twice as much as I know I'm going to need. And, and, and I really like when one re- meal rolls over into the next so that a roast chicken becomes tacos the next day or soup. Um, and that when, you, when you're cooking a lot, you make use of all that stuff, you know, in the back of the refrigerator and you start seeing, oh, you're accumulating odds and ends of vegetables. It's time to make a frittata, you know, really easy way. You just saute all those vegetables and scramble some eggs and pour it over and put that pan in the oven for, you know, 10 minutes and you have, you know, a delicious, simple uh, leftover consumer.
0: We're talking with Michael Pollan on the program today. He's our guest for the hour. He's uh, author of several books, of course, The Omnivore's Dilemma, several other bestsellers, and his most recent book just out is called Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He uh, gave an appearance in Salt Lake City recently for the King's English Bookshop. And uh, our guest for the hour, back after a brief break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Mountain West Bank, a community bank offering a variety of services and summer loan options for consumers. At 110 South in Brigham City, information is at mountainwestbank.com. It's a division of Glacier Bank.
0: Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? Look straight down and you should see gas come out like it's coming out of a water pistol. If you can't see, don't light a match. (laughs) So I'm just going to throw a little more gas in the carburetor. Sure. In fact, while you're at it, pour some on the seats. Pour some on the seats,
2: <laughs> seats too. join us again as we remind folks that it's only a car. This week on Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. So we're, uh, of course, hearing from Michael Pollan today. Um, and I just wanted to get a couple of uh, comments from our Facebook page. And this is, comes from Erica Flugan, uh, who says, I heard an interview with him talking about Michael Pollan a couple of weeks ago. Couldn't get enough. And uh, this is from Aaron Brewer. Of course, uh, listeners to uh, regular listeners to UPR know that Aaron Brewer and her family are great supporters of UPR, including her, uh, I think, nine-year-old son, Finn. And this is what Aaron says, One of Finn's favorite books is The Omnivore's Dilemma. And the documentary based on the Botany of Desire is one of his favorite videos. And then she adds, cool. Uh, some comments on our Facebook page. You are welcome to comment on this interview uh, at f- Facebook page, Utah Public Radio, or at upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, at gmail.com. We're back with Michael Pollan, author most recently of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He was in Salt Lake City recently for a, an appearance with the King's English Bookshop, and we're grateful to have him for the hour. Uh, the book's just out. The uh, title is uh, Cooked. Uh, Michael Pollan, um, I believe you know, one of things on your agenda with this book is to be encouraging, is it not, to, to help us get into the kitchen. In fact, uh, somewhere in the book, you you talk about some of the favorite things of yours to, to, to cook. I think you say bread, but you also go on to say a good scrambled egg can be very enjoyable, and that, if that's the place you start, that's the place you start.
1: You know, cooking doesn't have to be fancy, and I think one of our problems with cooking today is we're all intimidated, we're intimidated by these cooking shows on, in prime time, which make cooking look like heroic, uh, you know, work—a professional sport, best left to professional cooks. And then we're intimidated by the restaurant culture too. We all think that to cook means you have to—you have to be able to do what they do in restaurants, and you know that's not everyday home cooking either. So um, I think we need to relax a little bit about food and and realize that yeah, scrambled egg is an amazing food, and what a transformation that is to go from that yellow goop to those beautiful golden nuggets. Um, so I make all different kinds of things. And uh, I do like what I consider, you know, kind of extreme cooking, like um, baking, which I got really engrossed in. I mean, it becomes kind of this passion. Um, you know, people, I mean, I'm, I don't even bake my own bread every day, but, I, I, you know, once or twice a month, it's, it's just a great way to uh, spend the day and fill the house with these beautiful smells and and, and then have this bread that you you know you couldn't buy a bread as nice as what you can make. And um, but um, you know my my hope in the book is uh, is that that the people who read it will fall in love with cooking the way I did doing it. Um, I did a lot of things that aren't that normal people don't do. You know, I learned how to make kimchi and cheese and beer. Um, but doing those kind of extreme c- uh, cooks. Um, informs my appreciation of scrambling the egg or, or, or just grilling the, the steak um, on the fire. Um, you you kind of because you understand the deep principles at stake, wh- whether you're using you know heat transfer through a fire or uh, liquid in a pot or um, you're leavening something with yeast. Um, there are these basic transformations that underlie all cooking, and if you learn about those cooking everyday things becomes much more interesting and you become much better at it. So this is this is a kind of a deep dive into the into the, you know, the soul and the ancient history and the, and the science and the tradition of cooking. Um it's not a book of 20 minute recipes. Um that's going to tell you how to get food on the table. It's it's much more a how to think about it. Um but I'm hoping it inspires people cuz I I mean it, it that's what happened to me as I as I had my education. I mean I work with these wonderful artisans and, and chefs and bakers and cheesemakers, and these are people so passionate about their work. And to watch someone really good at their craft, and, and then to have them be generous enough to teach you how to do it and share their secrets, you know, was an was incredible privilege as a writer. And um, I, I have to say, I've never had more fun uh, reporting a book than I did doing this. Uh, it, it didn't seem like work um i was you know i was learning these skills that are, are priceless and and having a really good time
0: so uh, where did you start out as as a cook did you cook often obviously obviously you you dove into the deep end as as you said with the with these um uh i guess mentors you might call no, them
1: and for a long time <laughs> i was somebody who um you know we we did cook more nights than not um, we had a very small repertoire of things we would do that mostly involved grilling. Um, we live in California, so you can grill all year round. Um, and then roasting vegetables and um, occasionally making a stew or a soup. Um, but it was pretty simple, and um, I never gave too much thought to it. And I was always very impatient in the kitchen. And one of the things I learned how to do is to, is to um, cultivate patience and be in the kitchen without fighting it, which I think is a big problem for us, um, for all of us, because now that cooking is not obligatory, you know, there's always that takeout menu or that, you know, drive to the restaurant that you can do. Um, We're conflicted about it. And um, so I was trying to resolve that conflict for myself. And I found that if I approach cooking in the right spirit, um, I would and just said, I'm going to be in the kitchen now for 45 minutes or an hour, and this is what I'm doing, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, check my email, and I'm just going to be here doing this. I kind of cultivated this more Buddhist approach to cooking until until I got to the point where I could say to myself, as I did over and over again, when chopping an onion, just chop an onion. (laughs) Don't fight it, even though the onion's going to fight you. And so learning how to be in the kitchen um, was very satisfying. And, and at this point, it's a very therapeutic time for me. Um, it's how I kind of reset after the day's work and, and clear my mind of, of whatever, you know, naughty paragraph I've been working on or troubled student I've been counseling and um, and really just kind of be there. And, and the senses take over because cooking involves all five senses and, you um, Can really transport you. Um, But you have to let yourself go and and be patient. You know, we have this cult of the 20-minute recipe. And and in fact, a lot of those 20-minute recipes are really lying. They're not really 20-minute recipes. But if you try to publish a recipe, they insist you say it only takes 20 minutes no matter how long it takes, because we're in this time panic. Um, And so the question is, how do you how do you free yourself from that? And I, and I, I do understand how busy people are. I'm, I mean, I'm very busy myself. But I find that I make time for the things I deem important, and I always have. Everybody does. You know, I know I've got to get some exercise, so I make time to take a run or a hike. Um, and other people make time to go to a yoga class because it's so important to their sanity. Well, you know, approaching the right spirit, being in the kitchen, is just as important to your health and your sanity as going to the gym or the yoga class.
0: If you just joined us, we are talking with Michael Pollan, author most recently of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. We're on tape in this part of the program. You can still reach us at upraxis at gmail.com with your comments, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. I wonder if we could uh, maybe go briefly through through the um, you know, these, these elements. And tell sure. me, first of all, how, how did you find these these great teachers?
1: Well, um, you know that's that's part of uh, the reporter's job is finding your characters, casting, and in each case, I actually interviewed a great many people before I found the one that I, I, had, I sensed was right. Um, so I went to North Carolina and interviewed a bunch of different pitmasters. And first, I did it on the phone, and then I decided, well, I, I you know, for the fire section, I was looking for the most elemental kind of cooking we still did and the most like the caveman basically. And I realized it was whole it was North Carolina or let me be more precise. Eastern North Carolina whole hog barbecue, which is cooked uh as it's been cooked for hundreds of years. And the recipe is really simple. Pig plus wood fire plus thyme. That's it. A little salt. Um and uh so I went looking for people doing this, um the old fashioned way and, and I found Uh, a wonderful man named Ed Mitchell in um, Wilson, North Carolina, who is an African-American pitmaster, and uh, he's pretty well-known, actually. He has a national reputation. And we cooked together uh, at three different events, and uh, I learned from him um, the secrets of barbecue, which the big secret of barbecue is there's no secret of barbecue. (laughs) It's remarkably simple, as long as you give it enough time. Um, it will come out beautifully and you don't let it get too hot. Um, and I know people fetishize the different sauces, but Eastern North Carolina barbecue is so stripped down that there really is no sauce. They just splash some vinegar over the, over the meat at the end, which is really a nice element. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, I saw other pit masters and what I liked about Ed besides the fact is he had a wonderful story to tell and he could really link, um the culture of barbecue to the culture of race in the south and um and to the tobacco harvest, the culture of tobacco and barbecue are very closely tied up with one another. Um, so he was a great person to study this most elemental kind of cooking. The barbecue pit master is sort of like an ancient priest, you know, uh, who's overseeing the ritual sacrifice and cooking of the animal and the portioning to everybody. and it's it's this very kind of primal, almost, um, uh, you know, pre-religious uh, ceremony, uh, cooking the big animal. And people get so excited down there when someone's got a pig on the fire. Um, so, um, but I'd met other pitmasters, as I said, and, and one of the things that troubled me about most barbecue is that they use really cruddy pork. Um, they're using commodity hogs these indoor-raised um, uh, hogs that have a miserable life, and they're very lean also and stressed, and they don't make great meat, And uh, but they're so cheap that barbecue, which is a very populist food, only uses those, and Ed Mitchell is making an effort to work with small farmers and, and use really good quality pork that's raised in a humane way, so that was important to me too.
0: And you mentioned uh, connection with culture that that's important. That's something we'd lose if we if we get away from uh, cooking. Is it uh, that uh, connection with culture, with community?
1: And tradition, absolutely. I mean, these these kind of cooking, I mean, barbecue as and grilling too, is is has always been about the larger community because you're making a large animal. There's way too much for a family. So it usually means, you know, there's a pig on the fire, there's going to be a party. And it's and the community comes together around that fire, and everyone who who backyard barbecues knows that phenomenon. How the how the grill becomes this center of gravity and, and lures people out of the house to see what's you know they're smelling something good. They want to see what's on the grill. Um, there is something very communal in cooking. Cooking is about sharing, um, and it really is a kind of you know the meal, which is obviously closely linked to cooking. If you're if you're letting corporations cook, you're less likely to be having a meal. You're more likely to be eating on the run or or eating while doing something else or eating alone um but the meal is is a really important institution and the fire um i think encourages the meal and and it certainly did in ancient times and it, and i think it still does that power is still there barbecue is a very powerful dish um and you compare that to the microwave oven where you know a lot of processed food gets reheated those single serving they're called home meal replacements and they certainly are that um the the um the microwave is an individualistic uh way of cooking. If you think about it, you can only do one portion at a time. You can't cook for a group in a microwave. It's kind of like the Ayn Rand of appliances. I mean it's like one it's <laughs> every man for himself um and in fact, in the book we did a microwave night uh at my house, and we all made our own microwavable entrees and what was what was interesting about it is it didn't save any time. Um, it took 40 minutes to get the meal on the table, um, which was shocking because I thought the whole point was convenience. But since you can only microwave one at a time, um, by the time the, the, the fourth one was ready, the first one was cold and had to be re-nuked again. It made for the most disjointed family meal and didn't save any time at all. And I can tell you the food did not taste as good as the food we were cooking.
0: I wonder if we could uh, maybe to skip ahead talk about the air uh, section. You talk about bread, you, you, and and this I think you say is your your favorite thing to make is is good loaf of yeah, bread. Yeah, I really
1: I really got into making bread. It's it's uh, you know it's kind of become one of my hobbies along with brewing beer, uh, which are closely related, by the way. I mean, beer is you know they're both made with grain and yeast, um, but bread is an amazing technology. Um, it's invented about. Six thousand years ago uh, in Egypt, we think, and before that, people were eating grain in the form of porridges and gruels. You know, as soon as they could boil water in pots, uh, they were softening grain and eating it that way. But although you can um, you can't survive on a diet of um, porridge or flour, you can survive on a diet of bread made from the exact same grain. And that's kind of a, an amazing fact. And the reason is that the, the process of fermenting the bread and then baking it makes those grass seeds, which is what wheat is, of course, so much more nutritious. Um, a seed is, is, uh, you know, has everything a new life needs, uh, the, the new plant needs. It has protein and carbohydrates and fats and minerals and enzymes and amino acids and all this kind of stuff. But they're really locked up and very hard to get access to. The, the, the seed is defending it against pests and, and us. Um, but when you start that sourdough fermentation, um, introducing those yeasts and bacteria, they have these enzymes that break down those long, tight chains and into into small digestible bits of amino acids and sugars and minerals. And, um, and then when you bake it, um, you can... You, you, essentially, the loaf itself becomes a pressure cooker, and so you have in the little holes that have been created by the the yeast, you have steam, very very hot steam that can get a lot hotter than the boiling point. So you can get the inside of a bread much hotter than you can a porridge, with the result that you're thoroughly cooking the carbohydrates and making them really sweet and delicious and nutritious. So bread, you know, is a, is an ingenious technology for improving the the taste, nutritional value and digestibility of grass seeds.
0: And you're right that uh, the cow takes care of this with an extra stomach. We have to come up with more ingenious methods or I guess more complex methods to, to make this. The
1: cow does its own fermentation of grass. Uh, it, can, it can digest cellulose because it has the rumen, brilliant organ. Um, we instead have these technologies of fermentation. We, I mean, we have a fermentation going on in our gut also. It's not quite as elaborate as the one in the cow. Um, but in general, we, we like to break down our food before we ingest it, and that has been our great blessing as a species because when you can externalize digestion, which is what cooking is in effect, you can get a lot more energy from food, and that underwrites a much bigger human brain. Um, other apes our size have smaller brains and large, larger guts, and the reason for that is that they're, um, they have to process so much raw plant material. And that's really hard to do. Um, and it, it also takes a lot of time chewing. I mean, apes our size spend about six hours a day chewing. Now, you would not get a lot done. Uh, there would be no radio. There would be no books if you spent six hours a day chewing. So cooking has mm-hmm. been an enormous blessing to our, to our species.
0: <laughs> now I've got a picture of us chewing. But, uh, <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, raw foodists, think about that. I mean, how do they deal with it? They use a blender, right? I mean... You could not live as a raw foodist unless you had a, a blender, um, hmm. because you you just couldn't. You'd be chewing all day,
0: yeah, and we'd get nothing nothing else done. It'd be a de- very different kind of life.
1: Yes, it would. Yeah.
0: We're talking with Michael Pollan. Much more Pollin. like the apes. M- much more like the apes, yes. We're talking with Michael Pollan. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, he's author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, of course, other best selling books. The latest is Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He was in Salt Lake City recently for an appearance with the King's English uh, Bookshop. Back after a brief break.
1: There's no English translation for the Dutch word gesellig. It's a mix of cozy, cheerful, and exciting. Are there things that can never be understood, expressed, or experienced outside their home culture? I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, on to the best of our knowledge, wandering the unmarked maps of cultural translation. It's
2: to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and USU Human Resources. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll set sail for Martinique, Aruba, Haiti, Trinidad and Jamaica. I'm Rosalie Howard. Climb aboard as we go island hopping in the Caribbean on the next Putumayo World Music Hour.
0: We're back with Michael Pollan, author most recently of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He was in Salt Lake City recently for an appearance with the King's English Bookshop, and we're grateful to have him for the hour. Uh, The book's just out. The title is uh, Cooked. Um, I I want to get into talking about uh, a part of the book, which which is fascinating. You talk about uh, fermentation. And there's a bit of this that happens, of course, with bread. And then you get into um, making your own beer and, and, and such. And this is the part of the book that I think maybe would make some people a little bit queasy. I think you would say unnecessarily so. We have bacteria in our stomachs, don't we? But, the, yeah. but, but this is amazing that the, the, the we use fungi. Uh, yeah, well, process. you know,
1: I fell in love with bacteria and uh, in the process of learning about fermentation. I mean, these are, these are in a way, the most amazing transformations of all, because here we're using microbes, both bacteria and fungi, to cook our food without any heat whatsoever. Um, that's what the cheese is. That's what sauerkraut is, uh, or yogurt. Um, and um, that's kind of you know, a remarkable technology also, but it depends on these other living creatures. And those living creatures continue to live when we ingest this stuff. And we eat a lot of bacteria when we eat these foods. It turns out they're very beneficial bacteria. And, you know, as a civilization, we've been at war with bacteria for 150 years since we discovered the links between bacteria and infectious disease. And I grew up in a home where, you know, we were, there was constant vigilance about bacteria, but it turns out that, most bacteria are, are either neutral or actually very beneficial. And we have been killing off bacteria in a very sloppy way with the result that uh, the, our gut bacteria or the gut community of bacteria is impoverished now in the West, and that, that may be contributing to chronic diseases. Um, so I, I found this whole community of, of what I call fermentos These people kind of obsessed with fermentation, whether they're making kombucha or um, sauerkraut or, um, you know, uh, mead or alcohol or beer. Um, And they love bacteria, and they're very casual about it. Many of them drink raw milk um, and eat raw milk cheeses, and they basically think we need to renegotiate uh, the terms of our relationship with bacteria. And I think that they're right. Um, by and large. I mean, there's, things have changed, and we do have these superbugs around now that are really scary. But part of our problem with bacteria is that we're not exposed to enough of it as kids. So our immune systems really never learn how to cope with it. And that may expen- explain a lot of the allergies that we're seeing now, that we have this uh, immune system that really can't distinguish properly between friend and foe. And so it goes attacking things like you know nut proteins or or, uh, other foods in the diet um, and that's a very worrisome problem and it may well be that that um, exposure to more bacteria especially when you're young uh, may help um, and bacteria in our food in fermented foods uh, we're learning is, is just a, is, is really a terrific source of um, of good bacteria of good acids
0: and of uh, good fiber you make an interesting uh, analogy in the book between fermentation and gardening, and you go on to say that we succeed to the precise extent that we uh, manage to align our interests with theirs. I think you're talking about the, the, these bacteria in this case.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I was a gardener long before I was a cook, and um, one of the things I had to learn about gardening is you can't control everything in the garden, that you're not the only species here with, with a set of interests and you've got your plants, and you've got your soil microorganisms, and you have your pests. And gardening really becomes a process of negotiating those relationships. And if you strive for complete control, whether through chemicals or fencing or whatever you're going to have lots of unintended consequences and lots of problems. And we've learned that from chemically intensive agriculture. And that learning another way to to align your interests with the interests of these other species is really the key to good gardening and, it, and good farming. And it's also the key to good um, uh, fermentation. I mean, I, I found that fermenting, whether I was making sauerkraut or kimchi or, or, um, or cheese, that that kind of... Uh, somewhat indulgent attitude toward bacteria and, and the recognition that you can guide them by giving them what they want to eat, adjusting the temperature, um, but you can't make them do what you want. Um, and that's very frustrating to some people. Um, you know, it's it's not work for the control freak. Uh, it's work for the, you know, the, the person who kind of has a respect for other species and is willing to um, work it out with them. And uh, and I like that process. I found it very sympathetic. And I've continued to make uh, fermented foods, partly because I like the process, and it's so miraculous. I mean that you know you can chop up a cabbage and salt it and, and uh, you know kind of bruise it with your hands and put it in a crock, and a week later you 've got something else. I mean, the bacteria that you need are already on the leaves of that cabbage, and they go to work and transform that cabbage into something very different. Um, that to me is uh, kind of a remarkable transformation, and uh, so. I, but I also feel that eating a little live culture food every day is probably very good for your health, and um, so I make it myself.
0: The, the most spectacular example of this, you you talk about um, that every good baker of, of bread needs needs his or her own starter, and yeah. and, and it's just amazing to me how it, tell us how you how you start a starter.
1: Yeah, you know, this is an, another example of something people are intimidated by, and we tend to reach for the package of instant yeast. But you can get such better, more interesting results with your own sourdough starter. Um, and basically all it is is uh, you create a habitat for some microbes by mixing up some flour and water and get get it to the consistency of a, of a batter, of a pancake batter, and, and stir it a few times every day. Leave it open and stir it um and sooner or later these um these bacteria and fungi will find their way to it we don't know how they might even be on the on the grain already or they may be on your hands or they may be in the air nobody actually knows where they come from but they'll show up and it'll start bubbling on its own and you'll and you'll smell it and it starts smelling a little yeasty and then gets a little vinegary um, and then you 've got your starter, and you just have to feed it every day. you give it a you know a couple tablespoons of flour and uh, a little more warm water um, and that you know might seem like a burden it 's sort of like having a pet, um, but I find that I can just dry it out a little with extra flour and stick it in the back of the fridge and it 'll survive for months in fact, now that i 'm on book tour, you know it 's hanging out in my fridge, and it 'll take some work to revive it, but it 's there and um or I could start a new one. Um, I mean, some people are crazy about their starters. There's, there's actually a hotel in San Francisco that'll take care of your starter when you're on vacation. Um, but I, I really don't think that's necessary.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. And, and you know, the, the, it is amazing to me, that that process, that, you know, the bacteria will just find this. It also, I don't know, and I probably typical of some people that uh, you've you probably talked to before, I, I want to go home and scrub down my kitchen. But but you're you're saying these are... This is our friend.
1: Well, most of the bacteria are your friends. And you know what? You can wash your hands all you want, but within a couple hours of washing your hands, whatever bacteria were on there will be back. I mean, you have a community that lives on your hands, and they're hiding out in the crevices while you, you know, when you're washing your hands, and they gradually recolonize, and, and you need them. Um, you know, that said, there are dangerous bacteria. I mean, the meat that we buy now in the supermarket is... And the the chances are very good we just had the study in consumer reports that that most ground turkey has antibiotic resistant microbes on it Um, so there are bacteria to worry about we can't we can't go totally pacifist in the war on bacteria Um, and and keeping your cutting board clean is probably a good idea but um, on the other hand you know the the produce from your garden I'm not I don't overwash it sometimes I don't wash it at all if it looks okay those bacteria are probably good to have in your body, um, so it's 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 a tough public health message to tell people not to wash their produce, for example, because we still have pesticide residues, and you don't know what kind of fertilizer certain farmers are using. Um, but if it's your own, um, and you know, in terms of our kids, encouraging them to play in the dirt um, and not washing their hands every time they do or every time they pet the dog. These are probably good things. We, we need more, more microbial pressure in our lives. And the people around the world who have it, they don't get allergies. They don't get asthma, and they don't get autoimmune diseases at the rates we do. We
0: just have a few more minutes left with Michael Pollan, author most recently of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. I'd like to uh, end the few minutes we have left. Michael Pollan with uh, talking about how cooking transforms us and maybe we could start to just talking about uh about you you personally you you near the end of the book you uh talk about um regular family dinner how that's um ended with your your son going off to college you said you know forgive me if if i romanticize this but it is such a sweet tradition what have you been talking yeah, a little I, about, it's little a about
1: that it's also it's also an institution that is so important um I really believe the family dinner is the is is the nursery of democracy. Um I think it's important to our politics and and here's why. It's where we teach our children how to share, how to take turns, how to argue in a civilized way. We teach them manners. So all those kind of proto-civic skills are really learned at the table. And I don't think it's 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 an accident that as family dinner fades, um you know, everyday family dinner fades, that we're seeing our our discourse, our political conversation get more and more coarse and um and less civil um, so I, you know I think it's it's really important. It's also you know we're all so busy, and we're so obsessed with our screens and um and our um, you know whatever's going on in our our lives that the family dinner is the time to put down the phone, although I know there are kids who text under the table um, and and talk and reconnect. It's where I know I I learn what's going on with my son and where he learns what's going on with me. As a kid, it's where I learned politics, you know, listening to my parents talk about the Vietnam War or whatever it was. Um, So, you know, I think we let this go at our peril. And and we do know there's plenty of good um, social science research that suggests that Kids who have regular family dinner do better in school, Um, they're more successful in life, and they uh, don't have as much trouble with alcohol and drugs. Um, It has a very positive effect on us. So I think that's the biggest change. Um, If you cook, family dinner becomes really important because you're going to want people to appreciate what you're doing. You're going to want them to slow down and enjoy it. And they're going to want to do that, too, because the house is filled with those wonderful smells, and they draw people out of their bedrooms and away from their screens to the table. Um, So that's one. Um, And the other, you know, my cooking has sensitized me to um, uh, the importance of buying directly from farmers whenever I can, um, knowing where my food comes from, uh, paying, paying more for better ingredients rather than for more processing. Um, because when you cook yourself, you can actually, if you have some technique, you can afford to buy that cheap cut of grass fed beef, um, because you know how to make it delicious. Uh, even though it's a part of the animal that most people don't know what to do with because you, you now know how to braise it or stew it. And, um, so technique opens up enormous possibilities in our eating, um, and it always has, by the way, most great cooking. The whole French tradition was about how to get, how to tease great meals from really poor ingredients. And poor, I mean, you know, the parts of the animal that nobody else wanted.
0: And uh, from the, the individual, maybe taking this out to the universal, you say you, you've come to think that cooking is a political act. Well,
1: I do. Um, it sounds kind of weird, but... Um, whether we cook or not has an enormous impact on what kind of agriculture we have, which is to say what kind of world we're going to have and how it's going to be used. Uh, people who refuse to cook if, if if the culture of home cooking disappears in our civilization, um, we will be stuck with a with a with a really um, uh, environmentally destructive and brutal agriculture. Um, I really think that home cooking is the key if we're going to give put more money in the pockets of our farmers so they can not have to be under pressure to overproduce so that they can make grow the best food they can. Um, that all depends on cooking. We want to give 90 cents of our food dollar to them not to uh, the food processing corporations and the people making the packages. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're cooking again. So it's a, it's a vote for a better agriculture, um, uh, whether you cook or not. And uh, and that's why I think it is a political
0: act. And finally, uh, you say th- that if this goes in a certain way, maybe the, the way it's sort of trending now, that in the future, more exotic uh, techniques, such as maybe brewing your own beer, Uh, that's exotic to us now, but maybe just sort of regular cooking might appear to us exotic in the future.
1: Yeah, you know, that was kind of what Harry Balzer was telling me, the marketing expert. He he was saying, you know, the way you, um, you know, I mean, 100 years ago, 95% of people were baking their own bread at home. Now we think it's an exotic hobby. And he's saying the same thing is going to happen with roasting a chicken. Um, or um, uh, or perhaps even scrambling an egg. These will be these, you know, obscure skills that, that a, f- a handful of, of elders still have and nobody else has. I think he's wrong. I hope he's wrong. I mean, I think that people are rediscovering the beauty of food and all that food gives us. And um, uh, so, uh, you know... And in fact, rates of home cooking have ticked up a little bit in the last uh, three years. It may have to do with the recession. We'll see. Um, But there are some people rediscovering the kitchen. And and I'm hoping when people read this book, more people will join them.
0: Michael Pollan is author of uh, several best-selling books, including The Omnivore's Dilemma. The latest is Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. He appeared in Salt Lake City for the King's English Bookshop recently and uh, has been my guest for the hour on Access Utah. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, uh, thank you, Tom.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. In early May, pale yellow carpets at some hillsides of northern Utah. The plants are a non-native known as Dyer's woad. This Asian member of the cabbage family has been cultivated as a dye and medicinal plant in Europe and Asia for 2000 years. Dyer's woad produces a glorious blue dye, but the process is tricky. No synthetic dye equals the color and characteristics of woad dyes. Woad arrived in Utah in 1932 as a seed contaminant. Now it is a noxious weed. Woad has a number of unique abilities that contribute to its vigor, being a biennial plant It spends the first year of life as a rosette of leaves, building reserves. In its second year, those reserves allow a woad plant to send forth a tall, lanky stem covered with pale yellow flowers that ultimately yield up to 10,000 seeds per plant. Although Dyer's woad is not toxic, few animals relish it either. The seeds have chemicals that inhibit germination and root elongation in other plants, giving woad a competitive edge. Control of woad is a major issue. The economic losses from contamination of winter wheat and alfalfa crops, as well as decreased forage quality on grazing lands, adds up to millions of dollars yearly in Utah. Herbicides and mechanical removal are best used against the rosettes, but nature has provided a native fungus that views woad as dinner. This rust fungus is very effective at eliminating or severely reducing seed production. Plants infected with the rust fungus are misshapen, wrinkly, and covered in dark spots. These spots brim with rust spores. Therefore, when removing woad, leave the sickly plants to infect yet more woad. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society.
0: Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For
2: transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.